A very good evening to everyone and welcome to tonight's lecture, Haunted Images, the War Art of Laura Knight and Peter Housen, which wonderfully ties together our current exhibition showcasing Peter Housen's Holocaust Crowd Scene 2, which finishes this Friday, so please don't miss it, and our next exhibition, which will explore Laura Knight's major studies for her painting at the Imperial War Museum on the Nuremberg trial. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, just to remind you please to remain mute and to turn your camera off during the lecture to lessen any possible interference. But do please type any questions into the chat and I'll endeavor to read out as many as possible at the end. We may go over a little over our usual 45 minutes tonight, uh, but we will wrap everything up by 7.45 so that our speaker doesn't get locked inside the Imperial War Museum, which although I'm sure it would be fascinating, I think she would be missed by her family. So I'm really delighted to welcome tonight's speaker, Claire Brennard, who's a longtime friend of the gallery. Claire has been an art curator at the Imperial War Museum since 2012. She's currently writing a book, Visions of War, Art of the Imperial War Museum, which is a guide to the museum's art collection and features over 150 different artists and their works, including, I'm glad to say, Peter Housen and Laura Knight. And that's due to be published in November this year, and it's eagerly awaited, I must say. Claire's role at the museum is broad and varied. It involves research into existing collections and curating art exhibitions, including Wartime London, Art of the Blitz at the Churchill War Rooms and assisting on the exhibition Age of Terror, Art Since 9-11. And so without further ado, over to you, Claire. Thank you very much, Sarah. All right, I will just go and do my share, sharing of the screen. Uh, here we go. So hopefully you can all see that. Um, okay, so hello and thank you so much for inviting me. It's always good to work with Ben Uri and of course there are significant overlaps between what we do um, in our respective institutions. And I have to say, I was eyeing that wonderful watercolour by Joseph Herman at the at Rosemary's Auction House, and I'm absolutely delighted that it went to um, the Ben Uri collection. Just just mentioned that to Sarah just now. So on to uh, Laura Knight and Peter Housen. Now, of course, they're both um, they're not obvious artists to examine together, um, but what they do both have in common is they can be described as war artists in the sense they both received commissions from British institutions to make artworks about live or recent conflicts. Housen was commissioned by the Imperial War Museum in 1993, while for the Nuremberg works, Knight was commissioned in late 1945 by the War Artists Advisory Committee, which came under the British government's Ministry of Information. And it's no exaggeration to say that both the assignments were the defining moments in their respective careers and in their lives. What they'd witnessed in the course of these commissions left indelible impressions on these, on these artists, who then created artworks that were infused, haunted, if you like, with the disturbing imagery that they had witnessed. So at first I thought I'd take a look at the kind of work they were doing immediately before their momentous assignments. And this brought about this extraordinary juxtaposition of this slide. I think uh, gender studies specialists would have a field day on this. Um, I should say also all images in this talk are from the IWM collection, unless it says otherwise. Um, both artists work here presents us with gender stereotypes. There's something of the personalities and personal preoccupations comes to the fore also. Knight's painting of Ruby Loftus presents us with an exceptional woman who nonetheless is unthreatening and conforms to the feminine ideal. And Housen, on the other hand, is preoccupied with the problematic and highly threatening um, aspects of masculinity. 
And both artists at this stage were already well known, but Laura Knight was really at the height of her fame. In fact, she was the most famous female artist in Britain. In her 1965 memoir, Magic of a Line, she, acknowledge, she acknowledges this position saying, and I quote, even today, a female artist is considered more or less a freak and may either be undervalued or overpraised and by sole virtue of her rarity and her sex be of better press value, end quote. And I think she did know how to make the most of her position, her, her rather unique position. She had been um, the first woman artist to be made a Dane in 1929 and the first woman to be elected to the Royal Academy since 1768. Peter Howson had gained a lot of attention with his violent muscular work and already had a successful career and a celebrity following. So looking at Knight's commission first. In 1945, Laura Knight was already a war artist. Since 1940, she received a series of mostly portrait commissions from the War Artists Advisory Committee. Now a bit about the War Artists Advisory Committee, which was the brainchild of um, Kenneth Clark. He was the director of the National Gallery and an influential art historian and patron. And he helped to establish this committee in November 1939, right at the beginning of the Second World War. He took inspiration from the British war artist schemes of the First World War, which had commissioned, among others, but famously Paul Nash, John, John Singer Sargent, CRW Neverson, Stanley Spencer. And like in the previous war, this artist commissioning body um, came under the Ministry of Information. And this is the British government department responsible for all forms of propaganda and censorship across all media, including films, newspaper, radio, posters, photojournalism, advertising, even comics. In, in the context of all of this, um, collecting war art was a rather niche activity within the ministry. Part of uh, Clark's motivation was to help sustain artists during wartime, giving them opportunities to work and keeping them away from the front line. He also thought that the state should have a role in supporting artists. Now, although the word was uh, felt rather to be rather distasteful, art did have a role as propaganda. And this painting by Knight is one of the most overt examples. Knight was approached um, by the committee to paint Ruby Loftus, a 21-year-old who had mastered the difficult technical task of making a breech ring for a Beaufort's gun. Apparently this normally would have taken about eight or nine years to, to master this difficult task. And much, so much was made of the story and Loftus became the, the poster girl for women working in the factories during the war. Literally, colour reproductions of Knight's painting were made for distribution to factory canteens. And we actually have a bit of newsreel in the IWM archive of Loftus and Knight visiting the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition in 1943. And it's captioned, Royal, Royal Ordnance Factory Girls Portrait, it's Picture of the Year. So it, was, it made a big splash at the time. And Knight's portrayal of Loftus showed us as, as an exceptional woman, as I mentioned, who retained feminine qualities and exuded a kind of easy glamour despite mastering this difficult masculine task. The painting shows Knight's rigorous approach to realism and she had visited this factory in Newport to observe all the details of the machinery as so it became one of the most famous paintings of the war. And so come 1945, the war in Europe was ending. During this time, liberating armies were brought into direct contact with the remnants of the Nazi concentration camp system as they closed in on Germany. Now this happened most famously at Belsen, liberated by the British army, which was overcrowded with prisoners who had been forced there from other camps. The Allies gathered plenty of evidence of the genocidal campaign against Europe's Jewish and Roma people for groundbreaking trials. First, the Belsen British Military Tribunal in September 1945, and then at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg from November 1945 until October 1946. 
where 22 leading Nazis were tried. It was the first time that international leaders had attempted to put another nation on trial for war crimes. Nuremberg was chosen for, his, for its symbolic significance, having been the site of Nazi rallies. It was Knight's idea to tackle the Nuremberg trial. And she writes to the committee in December, 1945. Dear Mr. Gregory, what about the trial at Nuremberg for a subject instead of tanks? Um, doesn't sound as interesting, does it? Um, it seems a pity for such an event to be unrecorded. And I feel that artistically it should prove exciting. I believe that a gallery runs round the hall where the press are. That would probably be all right for me. I realize that the work would have to be done from small drawings held on one's knee. This I'm quite used to doing for certain types of subject." End quote. After about a week, the committee agreed and Knight be becomes the second woman after Mary Kessel, who they commissioned to travel abroad. Both of these women were commissioned after the war was over. She becomes a war correspondent at Nuremberg and it was the first time at the age of 68 that she had traveled by air. Knight describes her first impressions of Nuremberg in her 1965 memoir, The Magic of a Line. I quote, our VIP plane arrived at Furt and on our way to the Grand Hotel at Nuremberg, we got our first view of the horror of total destruction. This, the unique relic of antiquity in Europe, was a rubble heap. The Grand Hotel itself, this is where Knight was staying, um, about three miles from Furt, was the only building still retaining some of its original architectural features. Much of its centre had, had been injured. Had I come a week earlier, I was told, I would have had to walk a plank to get from the stairs to my suite. A lot of the walling has gone and all of that could be seen of what has been the municipal buildings opposite were fragments of stone and brick topped with a few black rafters." End quote. So when she goes to the courtroom, which was the Palace of Justice at Nuremberg, it seems that the sense of order that fostered there was in complete contrast with the destruction outside and there was high security, bag check, checks, solemn atmosphere of the courtroom. And there were a number of other artists there, um, including Joseph Flatter, David Lowe, Felix Topolsky, Eric Taylor. And this image here by Julius Stafford Baker, we can see the opposite view to what she would have seen. Um, and her, I don't know if you can see, I can probably, can I do a laser pointer? There we go. So this is the window where um, uh, Knight would have been um, looking down on the defendants here, judges here. So we get an idea of, you know, she had this high viewpoint. Let's take that off. So, um, yes, yeah, so that room there was used by an American broadcasting company. And uh, so she was able to draw, draw on the spot there. And she also had an office which she would use as a painting studio. So here are some examples of preparatory drawings that the War Artists Advisory Committee also acquired um, from, you can see that, that view down into the courtroom that she had. Um, and she, she described it as being very cold. It was winter when she was there. She was sitting wrapped up in a blanket and her fur coat in her Nuremberg diary. She also talks about her coping mechanisms. I quote, most of today, I keep my window closed, shutting out the happenings of the court. Often its horror is beyond bearing. I shut it out and concentrate on my composition. She also falls asleep after lunch. In fact, in February 1946, Knight heads home for, to England for a week's rest. She wrote, the horrors have got me down. She does not go into detail about the personal effect on her. Except there's a telling line where she says, even swallowing a mouthful of food is difficult. But valiantly, she returns to Nuremberg to complete the task, working in, in the office studio mostly this time and lunching with the VIPs to get the gossip. So this is a Knight's painting 
um, which was finally um, submitted uh, to the committee in April 1946. It's an incredible creative response for an artist who was known for her strict approach to realism. Indeed, most of the canvas replicates her view from her high up window, um, made by squaring up her drawings done there to translate onto canvas. She thought carefully about where all the defendants would go, was not afraid to move them around in order to suit the composition. But of course, the most remarkable element is along the top and the top left of the painting, where she has overlaid a backdrop of Germany's still burning ruins. And it made, it made such an impression on her. This treatment is, is a departure for night and I've not seen her do anything like this before or since. In her notes on the painting, she commented, I quote, in that ruined city, death and destruction are ever present. They had come into the picture. Without them, it would not have been Nuremberg as, we, as it now is during the trial, when the death of millions and the utter devastation are the sole topic of conversation wherever one goes, whatever one is doing. In her memoir, she wrote, I knew the meaning of total destruction on the first day after I arrived, when, when he had taken me to see this destruction, the devastation. I remember coming across a man, one of the few survivors in the city who told us, a thousand British bombers were dropping hell all night. Bombs fell like rain. Only a few, a few of us who found deep shelters to creep into were left alive. While night was there, temp the temperature was freezing. And people were living outside among the rubble, living off scraps of food. And even as early as 1946, the tensions of the Cold War were beginning to emerge. Now that Germany had been defeated, the differences between the Soviet Union and its Western allies were coming out even in the trial as each nation took a different tack in its prosecution. So quickly whizzing through the whole period, missing out really the whole period of the Cold War um, and fast forward to the, the early 90s and the end of that war to talk about Housen's Commission um, in 1991, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, too, was breaking apart. Firstly, two of its constituent republics broke away, ushering in two wars, one brief, bringing Slovenia's independence, and one between the Serb-dominated Yugoslav state and Croatia, lasting until 1995 but much of the worst violence resulted from the complex struggle over the fate of a third republic, Muslim majority Bosnia. In 1992, British troops arrived in the region as part of a UN protection force in response to the vicious fighting in Bosnia's war fought between Serbs, Croats and Bosnian Muslims. The conflict was widely reported in the news in Britain, particularly its campaigns of so-called ethnic cleansing. Uh, in the early 1990s, Peter Housen's body of work at this time focused on these rather grotesque depictions of masculinity, hard men and hooligans, in this case, the violent gangs of men in Glasgow. Housen had long been fascinated with such themes drawing battle scenes since he was a boy. His intention was never to glorify violence, which he detested, but he believed we all have the capacity for it within ourselves. Growing up, he was a loner. He preferred to stay inside drawing. He was bullied at school and his temperament was the very opposite of the threatening figures he portrayed. In his work, the 18th century Spanish painter Francisco Goya who famously depicted the disasters of war was a strong influence on Housen. He was an artist primed to tackle the brutal business of war. Housen was already on the radar of the IWM at this time. In 1990, it purchased this, this study, bottom right, for the regimental bath. The final painting is in the City Art Centre in Edinburgh. This was a controversial depiction of the British Army, and it reflected Housen's time as a member of a Scottish infantry unit. 
Houston remembers the soldiers picking up, picking on a new, weaker member of the unit and subjecting him to bullying and abuse as shown here. It was one of the punishments for somebody considered unhygienic, dirty, smelly. It was something done to outsiders. This experience left a strong impression on Housen. He was ashamed that he was a passive bystander in this and he was in the army for less than a year. This drawing was rather controversial to show at the museum and Angela Waite, who was keeper of art at the time, has told me that the director general of the time, Alan Borg, instructed her to take it off display. But in, the, but in early 1993, Housen was facing a creative block, struggling to put together his latest show at Flowers Gallery in East London. And it was around this time that the Times newspaper approached the Imperial War Museum with a proposal to collaborate in sending an artist to Bosnia. Now at this point, IWM did have a, a history of commissioning war artists. And that started in 1972 that sent Ken Howard to Northern Ireland. Although it had modelled this commissioning on Clark's War Artists Advisory Committee in the Second World War, it was very different. For one thing, Britain was no longer in what we call total war, i.e. the whole country on a, on a war footing, as it had been in the Second World War. Also, IWM did not have the capacity to engage as many artists as its predecessor, which had collected around 6,000 works by 400 artists by the end of the Second World War. In contrast, IWM Artistic Records Committee, as it was called, engaged on average around one or two artists a year. The museum, which always had rather limited funds for art commissioners, decided that a collaboration with the Times would be beneficial. So together, both organizations considered a short list of nine artists finally settling on Peter Housen for the job. Housen, like Knight, was determined to do the commission. He felt it would unlock his creative block. He also felt instinctively that it was his fate to go to Bosnia. It would prove a turning point in not only his career, but his life. Unlike Knight, of course, he was enter entering an active war zone, but he was excited about the prospect. This feeling disappeared, however, the moment he stepped off the plane in June 1993, and he became extremely fearful, understandably. And added into this mix, um, he was shadowed by a BBC film crew who were filming him for their 40 minutes series. There was a lot of media attention on him in general. All his reactions would be recorded and judged in real time. After a short period of, of acclimatization in the coastal, in the Croatian coastal town of Split, Housen headed into central Bosnia with the British army. This painting captures the kind of winding mountainous roads that were the only passage into Bosnia. Their convoy was forced to follow around 30 to 40 UN aid lorries around these sharp twisting roads. And it was here that Housen witnessed a, a lorry skid and turn over. The crew had no choice but to wait until alone with their consignment until help came. In this painting, he shows the convoy heading for Gornji Vakuf, where there was a large camp for British, British soldiers. They had been briefed on the danger surrounding them. Muslim bandits had recently attacked and killed Italian aid workers, and those who had escaped were deeply traumatized. The painting reflects the sense of foreboding as the convoy accompanied by an armored car journeys through this very dangerous territory. Along the way, passing through Prozor, Housen described the unmistakable smell, I'm quoting here, of blood and death hanging over the place. He saw unaccompanied children, and I quote, as we passed, they waved at us almost mechanically, pointing at their open mouths to show that they needed food. There were some adults there too, but they didn't acknowledge us and their eyes were blank. They looked right through us as if we didn't exist. To me, it was as if, as if there was a curse on the place. It was like something from a fairy tale, a town that had been cast into darkness at the whim of a vengeful God. 
Now, this reminded me of something actually, but I've heard similar description used by the artist Rosalind Mashashibi, who was commissioned by the IWM to go to Gaza in 2014. She felt that the place was under a spell and it was like a kind of alternative universe and, and trying to convey this in her film, Electrical Gaza, that was commissioned by the museum. But uh, getting back to this slide, this painting, Plum Grove, was bought by the Tate Collection following Housen's exhibition at the Imperial War Museum in 1994. It was actually the first work by the artist that the gallery had bought. Um, while Housen could stay in the camp with the British Army, the TV crew could not. And they stayed with a Croatian family who were renting their house. And Housen, so Housen also decided to join them there. And he felt he could find a bit of normality, albeit you know, family life with gunfire in the distance. At the same time, he was under the, the glare of the TV cameras who were filming his reactions, for example, to seeing his first corpse. And added to that, Scottish tabloid, The Daily Record, reported that he had sensationally quit after just four days. This wasn't true, and later an apology would be printed, but the damage was done back home, Housen's family home was besieged by journalists. In the end, his trip was cut short, not that short, but it was cut short because he caught dysentery and eventually transferred home. Understandably, Housen had been very frightened, but he had fought his fears until the illness took him. However, unsympathetic tabloid media char characterized him as a, as a coward this was a real low point for the artist when he returned home. He could not even paint. His creative block was worse, if anything. He could not process at this point what he, what he had seen. But eventually, he decided he needed to return to Bosnia and suggested the idea to the Imperial War Museum, who agreed it, it, it it was a good idea. And uh, six months later, and this time in December 1993, he headed out again to um, the conflict zone. There were some changes. He was given an honorary rank of major and uniform, so he'd be better treated by the army, who weren't particularly sympathetic to him. They didn't really understand what he was all about. And uh, he brought along an assistant as well, Ian McCall, who was uh, a glass, he's a Glaswegian sculptor. And he, a, very, a very jovial presence, it's quite different in demeanor to Housen, and together they made a strong team, much more at ease. Um, his working methods, well, he used video, which McColl was, was filming. Um, Housen commented, you can't sketch someone who is utterly terrified. They spent their days accompanying the army on their business and worked in the evenings. And it was no less grueling than before. They were shot at by snipers and attacked by young men using hypodermic needles as blow darts. But they also got involved. Housen described what he called a watershed moment when he and McColl helped the British Army collect around 150 deeply traumatised, some of them had been raped, women and children who had been made homeless by the Serbs and they'd driven them out of the Muslim town of Banja Luka. This was a breakthrough for Housen as he could finally help rather than be a detached observer, something he'd long been uncomfortable with. And Housen's always been very honest about his experience. He, he says that helping these traumatized people was a breakthrough for him personally. Housen returned from his second trip, and this time he began to paint. He found painting the horrors therapeutic. By the summer of 1994, he had an impressive body of work to show IWM's Artistic Records Committee. They, and I quote from the minutes, agreed that the images were very powerful. Some were most upsetting and all portrayed the horrific nature of the conflict in Bosnia. It was established that some images depicted events which the artist had himself witnessed. Others were compositions based upon a combination of experiences and reports from army contacts. 
And then this is the painting on, on the slide here that they selected for the permanent collection. It shows a vulnerable family group of Bosnian Muslim refugees who, whom Housen had witnessed. They were refused entry to the, to the UN camp where he was and Housen remembered their desperation as they were exposed to sniper fire. A British soldier had urged him to draw them, but he could not. In the end, the peacekeepers advised the refugees to seek shelter amongst a convoy of tanks, which they did. But seeing them, and that image was burned deeply into his, into his mind, he, he came up with this painting. Housen's show opened in September 1994 at the Imperial War Museum and Flowers East Gallery concurrently and there were 35 paintings to show. But of those paintings, it was not this one, but another one which became notorious, attracting a lot of attention and debate. It still does. And the reason was because it wasn't chosen for IWM's collection. Talking about Housen's depiction of a violent rape scene, it's called Croatian and Muslim. Housen had based the imagery on numerous witness accounts. The committee's vote had been close, with the two women members, so the keeper of art Angela Waite and art critic Marina Vasey, in favour of its acquisition, but they were outvoted. The stumbling block was that the artist had not personally witnessed the scene, and that therefore the work could not be included in an artistic records committee acquisition. And this was the strong view of IWM's Director General at the time, Alan Borg. The painting subject matter, that of rape, had long been a weapon of war, but one that was still largely a taboo subject, or at least only associated with brutal conflicts of, of the distant past, not, not modern Europe. However, reports of the Bosnian conflict brought the scale of its sexual violence to the attention of a shocked public. In the view of the Times leader from September 1994, Croatian and Muslim was, I quote, terrifying in its art and in its impact. And according to many, the most specific model, most specific symbol of a, of a savage racial war in which rape and the rumors of rape had played so dominant a part. But the newspaper did have some sympathy with the IWM's decision and it decided not to publish an image of the painting itself. By the end of the decade, the museum's committee would evolve into the Art Commission's committee. That's what it's called today. And, and this removed the stress on this rather outdated idea of artistic records and freed up artists, now the emphasis was on their creative responses to, uh, to conflict in their commissions. I think this is a subject for a whole other talk, by the way. The debate Housen's work pro provoked in the press about the, man about the merits of imaginative painting in the field of war art has proved to be an enduring one. Uh, most recently, the painting Croatian and Muslim appeared in Mary Beard's, in Mary Beard's series um, on forbidden art for BBC Two this last year. Famously, the painting at the time was bought by pop star David Bowie, who wished to save it from being sold to someone in the US. As for Housen, making uh, paintings about the Bosnian War had proved cathartic. The nightmares he had long suffered throughout his Bosnian experience had finally ended. So um, I thought I'd bring the Ben Yuri works into this here. Um, Housen, as we know, went on, I mean, he continues to be a completely prolific artist. And, 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 and continues to be unafraid to tackle humanity at its most violent, extreme, and debased. His experiences as a war artist in Bosnia had given him further insight into the subject that preoccupied him, looking in unflinchingly at the enduring theme of the human condition. Knight, on the other hand, returned to her previous themes, 
ballet, circus, gypsies. Above all, she was continu continuing to look for interesting subjects, interesting people to make real in paint. Her attitude to life was to live in the present, so the war years were the exception for her. Her can-do na nature meant that she had embraced the opportunities that came her way. Her themes were not like Housen's. She was interested in documenting interesting humans as she observed them, recreating them on the page. And the drawings that Nuri have acquired give us an insight into her, her working practice as she temporarily pivoted away from her usual subject matter in order to engage with and record such an important historical event. I've just shown one of them here with a detail of the house and painting that um, Ben Yuri have, have acquired. Um, these were exceptional periods for both artists and they show, they show them for the individuals they are. Both have a determination to be part of something momentous. Knight, who was a trailblazer, a woman marking out her space and doing it her way in a man's world. She also notably took control of her assignment. And after all, it was her idea. She decided when to take a break, who she talked to and engage with, when to disengage and when to finally leave, from home, leave for home. But in some ways she was conventional. In her work, she kept to the conventions of the time, this, this, this kind of feeling of reserve. Her drawings are restrained. If she didn't look far beneath the surface, it's because her art is an intense study of surfaces, of faces, bodies, and their settings, allowing her, and therefore us, to deduce what she could from appearances alone. In the case of the wider setting of Nuremberg, its appearance betrayed its undeniable truth to her. Housen, in contrast, was initially out of control and arguably out of his depth. When it, when it came to his commission, but he managed to regain control on his second trip. He'd always, he'd always confronted in his work masculinity at its most toxic and problematic. At the same time, he was not immune to the expectations associated with his gender. When he was framed as a coward, it affected him deeply. When he was able to upend this, prove himself, he had his personal and artistic breakthrough. The house and two is a product of his time when there was a place for an artist like him to smash taboos and show us his unrelenting and exhaustive examination of human nature at its most horrifying. Following his well-documented struggles with drink, drugs, his family breakdown, he has now found the Christian faith to sustain him and it emerges in his work continues to confront humanity's worst excesses, what most of us would rather ignore. It is this inquiry which inevitably led him to the subject of the Holocaust. It could be said that these two artists show us two sides of the same coin, the brutality and chaos of Hausen's art and the rationality and scrutiny of Knight's vision. These artists show us contradictory but truthful insights into human nature and the human condition. Thank you. And I think possibly I've um, whizzed through that because <laughs> it's a lot earlier than I thought, but um, that's the end of my talk and there's lots of time for questions if you do have any. <clears throat> I will... oh. So I stopped sharing. Thank you, Claire. That was really wonderful absolutely fascinating and beautifully brought together those two artists and their contrasting experience uh, you know two artists that seemed perhaps disparate on the surface but in fact you know you really um showed how much in a way they had in common but also where they they diversified and i was very interested in what you said um about the sort of gender studies aspect. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to start by telling us a little bit more about that perhaps, and I'll just be looking at the chat to see if our audience are limited. Yeah, shall I bring up that slide again? Because I think it's just- Yes, that would be. Uh, <laughs> uh, where are we? Here we go. So I'll just, um, 
Sorry. <laughs> Don't know what's happened here from the beginning and then let's do it. Yes. This one. Isn't it? Um, yes. I, I don't see so, seeing that. Oh, you can't see it. You can't see it. Okay. <laughs> Let me see. That's crucial. Uh, let's I'm not try sure again. if that's been disabled, has it? If it has. No, a... it hasn't. I think I'll just try again. I think because it. Thank you, Doug. Um, share screen. Window. That one. Share. Okay. Has that worked? Yes, absolutely. That's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, you were talking about those, you know, the intrinsic sort of gender values within that. Now, it would be lovely if you wanted to um, unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, if you take night for at first, it's obviously very famously the Second World War is an interesting time for women as they're they're brought into the factories. And they're having to sort of step into these uh, into a man's world because they, you know, to help the war effort, they just need to they they're needed to do that. These young women, um, and the the propaganda value of this image, and and the whole story behind it, because Ruby Loftus is there's interviews with her in the press is much made about her that she's this young woman, she's only 21, and, but she still, you know, once this is all over, she wanted to settle down and have a family and go back into the home. So there's there's this idea that, yeah, it's okay, you, you know, the women can come in and do these, these jobs, but the, on the understanding when everything goes back to normal, they go back into the home, they go back into their, their sphere and their areas. And, um, you know, the, the, the way Knight, I mean, Knight obviously has this approach to realism. She's she's gone and she's looked at, I mean, it's incredible the detail that you see in this painting. Um, but, you know, she's, isn't, isn't Loftus such a cool customer? You know, she's, <laughs> there's, she's looking very relaxed. She isn't, you know, it's intense. She's intensely looking at what she's doing and she's working on this, but it doesn't look, it doesn't look like the taxing job that apparently it was because, if there's any mistake made, that was potentially very dangerous for the the, the, the weaponry that was being made, apparently. Um, and then she's also put in the context of, you can see her fellow workers in the background, all the women um, who are much more sort of generic. Um, we, we don't see their faces. So there's, uh, it, it, Brian Foss in his book about um, the War Artists Advisory Committee writes on this really, it's really interesting what he says, because there's this idea of this, Loftus is this exceptional woman, and this is mirrored in the story of Laura Knight, and she was an exceptional woman, um, and um, and this is the, the the woman that's being celebrated. Really, you know, we're not we're not talking about ordinary women. We're talking about exceptional women, and they're 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 allowed to be celebrated. So, um, it's just a fascinating painting, and I just think it's fascinating that you know that was the inspiration that that was printed and put in canteens and these these women were like yes you can aspire to this so this is a hugely aspirational image which is you wouldn't say that the, the house and image is not is not um aspirational in the slightest um, I was, and um, yes if i can interrupt you rudely yes, for one second, Claire. i was yeah. just really interested i think in the talk you said that um ruby Loftus had mastered this task which usually took about nine years yeah. in, yes. just a couple of years and so I, one wonders whether this remark that's printed about her wanting to give up afterwards and go back and raise a family is to sort of offset the <laughs> yes. remarkableness yes. of her achievement seeming to outshine uh, her male colleagues at that point. But Yes absolutely absolutely I mean that I've I've seen that sort of talked about before, and I've I've never had a chance to really dig into it and find out, you know, why was it something that took so long? How did she get it so quickly? Mm -hmm. What was it about her? Um, and I feel that's the problem with this sort of, um, you know, we have a lot of information about this in some ways. It was widely reported on, but those deeper questions, we don't have an answer to. Absolutely. You know, yeah, what the process was. Um, I've got two. Um, one is a 
is a comment and one is a question coming in here. Well, also uh, an earlier comment to thank you for the fascinating information. Uh, then a comment here from Colin Cohen, who says that the Ruby Loftus painting has the same dynamic as one of the cartoonist David Lowe's most famous drawings. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I think David Lowe was one of the Nuremberg artists as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that's an interesting comment. And then we have a question from Tina Matania. Um, do you think particular artworks have informed and assisted the aim of achieving justice, prosecuting crimes against women in the context of war? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? The whole um, story around House and, and that painting. Um, I think we're a bit more open now. I mean, it's a, a, a horrific subject, this idea of um, sexual violence as, as a weapon of war. But I think it's something that's much more widely studied now. Um, in fact, you know, we've been grappling for a while at IWM about doing what we call a season on this and really tackling this subject in our exhibitions. Whereas, you know, it wasn't that long ago, um, the early 90s, where, you know, obviously it's shocking, but it just was, it's shocking at any time, but it was far more taboo, you know, and, um, and uh, we have this reasoning that it wasn't something he witnessed, but I'm not sure. I think there was another reason as well that we didn't, this wasn't the one we required. It's not really answering your question. I, I don't know whether, obviously everything that artists do in terms of work, making work about war and engaging with war and making us think of these, these huge questions is important. It, it, um, it, give, it allows us to search ourselves and all of that. Um, but in terms of sort of, justice and evidence I think the only thing example I can think of there's been times where artwork artworks have been used as evidence and we have those in the in um in the collection so I'm thinking about the far, the the people who are uh, prisoners of war in the far east during the second world war so somewhere like that where there wasn't much film footage or photographic footage which are the sort of primary sort of mediums that we go to for um visual ev evidence you have the evidence of these artists and it, I mean there's people like uh, Philip Maninsky were, were drawing sort of the the sort of improvised medical operations and um, the diseases that were happening and this is evidence but yeah that's a bit of a different thing in terms of I think obviously what what Housen was doing he's the he's the trailblazer he's trying to yes. <laughs> confront these things first that no one else is you know who would make a painting of that sort of thing he, he's he's doing that but it's it's a step along the way i suppose in this kind of let's start to talk about this let's start to think about this um yeah, yeah i don't know if that kind of Indeed. answers <laughs> no, thank you the questions are all and comments are all coming in thick and fast okay <laughs> might we've obviously opened something up there so uh, david mcavoy um thanks you for all that information again and he wonders whether the IWM would be interested in purchasing similar paintings. I think you've sort of maybe covered that by what you went on to say, as he says, Housen's work moves beyond the artist as eyewitness and even seems to move beyond the artist as a means for recording and imaginatively responding to the eyewitness accounts of others. Um, Tina, again, uh, enjoys the details of the uh, Loftus painting. Our own David Glasser asks uh, how much interaction there was between the Imperial War Museum employers and the artist as the employee before, during and after commissioning. And just hoping you're having time to absorb these. Uh, I might have to go back on these and I'll do them <laughs> one by one. <laughs> um, just notes that she had, or he, I'm not quite sure, this viewer had uh, booked on to listen to Laura about Laura Knight, but is now knocked out by house and the rape picture in particular, having been appalled by the number of women being raped across Europe um, in conflicts. Um, and then I think, I'll, I don't know if you want to come back on any yes. of that before. Yeah, 
Go yeah, let's let's yeah. I'm not going to take it all in. Um, so I just so about the um, the contact with the artists. So uh, IWM sort of commissioning has sort of been evolving ever since it started in 1972, and I think what came up was Housen's experience, and then after Housen, um, we sent the artist Graham Fagan to Kosovo. Um, we really started to evolve our thinking and um, Graham Fagan, he was the first artist, we, we do keep in contact with our artists, but he was the first artist to come back and then go back to the committee and present and sort of have a sort of most evaluation feedback of what it's like to be a war artist. And he really said, you need to have more than one go over because it's just such a lonely thing. Um, you know, even the, the, the press that are there, the journalists, there's a there's a group of them. They they can share mm. share experiences, stories. If a war as a war artist, you're lonely and no one really gets, you know, you might get some people who are interested in retrieve what you're doing, but a lot of people will be, you know, particularly people in the army, but even the journalists um could be a bit cynical about what you're doing. Um so and, and of course you've got that they have that connection with the IWM. We, use, we used to sort of go via the MOD and they would help assist. We also worked with NGOs um, with Af in Afghanistan. That's what we did um, when we sent uh, Paul Seawright and Langans and Bell. So following Graham Fagan's feedback, we sent two sets of artists to Afghanistan. And we, try we were trying to move away for the MOD at that point as well, because we didn't want, we're, trying, we're always trying to say we're not a military museum. You know, obviously that's a big part of what we do, but that's not the only side. So we're interested in working with other organizations that are in the war zone. But um, we haven't done this sort of thing for a while now. We're, we're, we're kind of reassessing how we do it because we know from these stories that there's, there's quite a few, it's quite problem, problematic sending um, so this observer into the war zone. It, it, it really has its foundations from the First World War, this idea of a war artist going out to the front line um, a lot of these artists, such as Paul Nash, for example, famously, he was a soldier, he came back, he made his own artistic response, and then he was engaged by the war artist scheme and sent out again to um, make artworks for the propaganda scheme. So it's this, that's the model that throughout the 20th century we've been looking to, but it's just not fit for purpose in, when we're dealing with contemporary conflicts, it's not the same. Um, but yes, with 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 the artists that we do engage with, they um, we have a sh we we have a shortlist. As I mentioned, Peter House and there were nine artists on that shortlist. Um, they chose House, and I think those artists were kind of certainly with other commissions, we, we would get them to present their ideas. So that um, and they would come to the committee and they'd say, if I if I was chosen, this is what I'd be interested in. This is what I'd look at, and that was more of the evolution as well because the idea was the committee wouldn't be telling these artists what to do they were selecting their artists these artists on the basis of their previous work and thinking that this would be an interesting combination so there's been an evolution but certainly we do keep in touch with our artists as much as possible if they're interested um, because it, it's a momentous thing in any artist's life to do a war art commission um, yeah. And then what was the other question that was before yeah. that? So, well, I think you, you've covered a lot of ground now that I've okay. thrown so many questions at you. Uh, mm. But somebody does ask if there um, are equivalent powerful artists currently commissioned to paint in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, so we haven't, we know we haven't got a commission currently to paint in Ukraine. So we've, at the moment, our major commissioning project is um, what we call the 1418 now legacy fund so 1418 now was a, a sort of a government arts project that happened during the centenary of the first world war and they 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 were sort of in partnership with iwm and they did all these they did various arts projects it was wider than sort of visual arts it was theater involved and things like that as well um and jeremy Della famously um he he engaged all these um these people to wear the first world war uniforms and stand still in the in the in stations around the country tra train stations i forget the name the title of that piece now but there was there were quite a few you know high profile artists like him and crucially for us peter jackson the filmmaker 
famous for the Lord of the Rings films. He wanted to work with the film archive and he made this film, They Shall Not Grow Old, which he had, he colorized, he cleaned it up and he colorized it. It was an amazing hit and he um, agreed to share the royalties with the museum for a project to commission artists. So this is what we call, there's been quite a bit, there's been a bit about the press about it, but it's um, called the 1418 Now, leg I think it might even be called the IWM 1418 Now Legacy Fund. Um, and the idea is we're looking more outwards and we're working with different um, organisations across the UK. So we're not just having things in within the museum here. Um, I think quite soon, Michael Rakovitz, the artist, he will be um, opening his, his show that's part of this at the Baltic Centre in Gateshead. Um, they're working with Company XY, who was a circus company in Northern Ireland, Derry. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's the, the Glyn Vivian Gallery in Swansea that we're working with. Um, Heather, Heather Phillipson, the artist, is, is doing work there. And there's more to come as well. So, I mean, it's just this incredible, huge project, which is, which, as an oversight, the IWM Art Commission's committee is sort of overseeing this. It, it's, it's so different to what we were doing before. We're dealing with higher sums of money. We, we never had very much to do these, these war zone commissions. But yeah, crucially, it's not sending British artists out into war zones. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's what we're doing at the moment. <laughs> so much detail about all that really, um... Yeah, sort of uh, informative. Um, I've, I've got a couple more here. Um, so Robert Pass, Parks says, you can see the intention of the two artists in the execution of their various styles. Were there anti-war statements to do with their choice of styles? I.e., Was it deliberate or was it just the way they felt most natural to express themselves? Oh, so anti-war statement. I mean, you could say for Housen, for sure. I mean, he's just, you know, he he is somebody who is um, exploring something that he is appalled by. And I think what's fascinating is that he just continues to do it. He churns it out, you know, it's how does he keep painting these, these paintings, which is often so difficult to look at. Um, but... Yeah, it, it, it's it's anti-war. Yes, I'm sure it's 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 anti-violence. But he but he's having to confront this because he believes um, that we're all capable of this. And I think his, you know, his faith is a, a big part of how he's kind of conceptualizing this, how he's thinking about this, and what it means to be human. And he knows that you know he's spoken about how we are we have good within us too. Um, and it's not like saying, oh, we're, you know, we're all evil, we're all bad, but he just doesn't sort of shy away from that. So I think, yes, it is an anti-war statement, but he's also kind of, yeah, there's nothing you could, I mean, you couldn't say any of his work was pro-war. I don't think anything about it glorifies war. And then with, with a woman artist like Nora, Laura Knight, it's a different sort of thing entirely because it's showing an aspect of war, which is away from the front lines, away from the violence. Um, I mean, actually what Rubinoff is doing here is creating a part of a of machine which will inflict terrible violence, isn't she? Um, so, I mean, you could say, I, you could easily say this work was pro-war. I mean, you know, you could even say this work glorifies war. You could go that far. Um, but it had a purpose at the time, you know, we're talking about the whole country who was, un, who was under total war and, there was a reason for trying to keep people unified in this. Um, um, this, this is what the government would, was trying to do with its um, visual outputs and things. Um, but then when you look at the, it's a different sort of context once it's over and once you're looking at the Nuremberg uh, trial, the, that, that painting, um, and this is about a reckoning, isn't it? It's about the end of the war and, and you know, acknowledging that this, terrible thing has happened and it, it's still visible um, but something sober and uh, rational uh, judicial you know the, the the legal environment is something we can use to sort of heal and get over this so 
yeah, is that anti-war or pro-war? I don't think it's either really. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I think final comment we have here is from Diane Silverthorne, who says, "Della's work. We're here because we're here." Question. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're here because we're here. Yeah. 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 Very powerful work. Indeed. Well, Claire, I think we've um, covered so much ground tonight and I think we should let you get home now before you're locked in. And, thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, Well-deserved supper. I uh, <laughs> hope you'll come and talk with us again. It's been absolutely brilliant and we've learned so much apart from the artists and the paintings that you mentioned, just so much about what's happening at the Imperial War Museum, all the brilliant things you do, the sort of current commissioning process, how you look after artists and that kind of thing, which I feel we would all not, not have known without your um, intervention. So thank you for all that. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. So I will just um, ask everyone to thank Claire again for that fascinating talk. I'd also like to thank Reka behind the scenes for all her hard work. If you haven't done so, please try and catch Peter Housen's work at the gallery. The last day is this Friday. And then the Nuremberg Trial um, Studies by Laura Knight, that um, exhibition will open on the 25th of July. So we hope to see you all there. Please look out for further talks, which we hope will be as good as Claire's uh, this August um, on Benary.org. So thank you all and good night.